This podcast is brought to you by the Health Sciences Doctoral Training Centre at King's College London. Hi, you're listening to Postocalypse, a podcast by postgrad students about all things postgrad. The name comes from the idea that once you finish your PhD, there's the big question for all of us whether we'll continue along an academic path or take one of the many alternative routes that are on offer to us. We're a team of PhD students at King's College London trying to navigate this crazy world and we'll be sharing the highs and the lows of postgraduate study. My name's Emily Pripper and I'm a PhD student in studying nutrition and today I'm joined by Harris Schwabe who's doing a PhD in artificial intelligence in brain cancer and um, we're going to be talking about his research and his experience of getting onto the PhD as well. Also joining us on our panel, we have Laura Mead, a PhD student in population health, working in health psychology, and um, we also have Naomi Hartock, a PhD student in neuroscience. So today we have Harris coming in to talk to us. Um, He's a PhD student at King's in the Centre of Neuroimaging Sciences. Thanks, Harris, for coming in. Thanks for having me. And I'm really excited to talk to you today, Harris, because all of us PhD students think that we're saving the world one thesis at a time. But off air, actually, Harris, you were telling me that you really are saving the world. Is that right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I'm doing my little bit. How's that exactly? So 50% of high-grade brain cancer patients don't survive 15 months that is a terrifying statistic. Yeah, it is. It's a very aggressive disease. And my PhD is working towards increasing the number that survived those first 15. So I will give it to you, Harris. Maybe you are uh, changing changing the world one thesis at a time after all. So we're working with high-grade brain cancer patients. Um, so these patients have glioblastoma. Uh, these patients, 50% of them won't survive 15 months. That's wow. with standard treatment, so radiotherapy, surgery and chemotherapy as well. What we are trying to do in particular, my supervisor and I, is we're trying to train a computer program to be able to detect when these patients are not responding well to treatment. At the moment, there's a lot of uncertainty. That's partly because of the radiotherapy that we give them. That gives a lot of uncertainty in the images that we take in follow-up. And we're hoping that if we can predict earlier when they're not doing so well, we can go in with a second surgery or second intervention or refer them to a clinical trial. Okay. Most brain tumours, once it starts affecting your brain, you fall downhill very quickly. You begin to lose speech, you know, ability to walk around, all this sort of stuff. So, and it's it's the follow up when they come in. So yes. So they have. So what happens is usually somebody would have some sort of symptom which would be significant, like a seizure, or they'll pass out, or something, or like a a series of headaches like really painful headaches, and they'll come in and they'll see this huge tumour in their brain. It's often very large. And they'll have emergency surgery to get as much tissue out as possible. And then they start on a regime of radiotherapy and chemotherapy. Because mm-hmm. um, so the, aggress- the treatment is very aggressive because the disease is very aggressive. The problem is, is that we need to see how, how they're responding to treatment, just like with any intervention whether it's medical or dietary or psychological sure yeah um the problem is is that the very treatment that we're giving them is affecting our ability to see how they're responding to that treatment why is that sorry so um so it's largely to do with the radiotherapy um that we give them also the chemotherapy agent sensitizes them to the damage that the radiotherapy does and this damage looks a lot like cancer damage essentially um so 
the current guidance for radiologists um, suggests that if they see something that could be the cancer coming back, to ignore it for the first follow-up scan. Wow. Because the downside is, is that if you go in for a second surgery or you refer them to a clinical trial thinking they have the disease and they don't, that's incredibly traumatic for the patient. It's Absolutely. incredibly expensive. It's incredibly inefficient. Scientific results become invalid now because you assume your cohort had the disease. Sure. When a significant, like it's 25 to 30% of these patients will have this pseudo progression where we mm. think they have the disease, but they don't. So then your research is coming into play. So essentially to second guess it before you, the radiologist. Yeah, exactly. The, essentially the computer's better than the human eye. Well, it's not that it's in some ways, yeah. That's it's, a whole other debate. Yes, it? yeah. So it's it can we are hoping, and it has been shown in limited cases that it's more sensitive. The idea is so we use MRIs to um, uh, follow up these patients. So it's different imaging to X-rays, and MRI is really good at really subtle soft tissue contrast. So obviously your brain is soft and wobbly. So to to understand that subtle change in contrast as well from your previous scan. So that's what the radios often do. They'll compare it to your previous yeah. scan. We think a, a computer would be more sensitive than a human would be, or at least it would help the human um, guide them, which is fundamentally different. Because often people, whenever they hear about artificial intelligence or computers in healthcare, they think we're trying to put everyone out of a job. Absolutely. But it's not. It's in the same way that, you know, like with autopilot, we're trying to help the professional. Yeah, and assist them yeah. in any way they can. Exactly, Not essentially yeah. replace them. No, yeah, it's just like any other diagnostic test, essentially. We're just helping them make the decision. So this is obviously at the moment, whereabouts are we in the stages of rolling this out? So this is actually being used with patient data at the moment. So so it's not rolled out in terms of routine clinical. So if if a new patient came to the hospital today and was coming for follow-up, they wouldn't have any of this analysis done to their imaging data as part of their clinical workflow. They might as a research subject. So this is research that's happening not just in this institution, not just in this country, but all over the world. Yeah. Um, and so that's where we are now. It's still in the research stage. And we're sort of getting, not just in this case, but just generally using AI in healthcare to clinical validation. Like, okay, we can predict certain things, like we can predict, you know, how these patients will respond. But what does that really mean in how many people survive those 15 months? It, if it doesn't make any real reduction, then, then it's all for naught. Yeah, yeah, fundamentally. And that's this big step that a lot of people haven't made. And that's why there's limited products that use AI in the market because that final step hasn't really been But your completed. PhD, Harris, is it going to pave the way? Yeah, so that's what we're hoping to do. Yeah, so I've I've come in as a clinician before I was a, a research student and so I'm very much involved in the clinical workflow um, and so I can see or I know roughly how a tool like this would fit in and where the sort of the shortcomings could be um, and where it would be helpful to a radiologist. Harris, thanks. Okay, so panel, how do you imagine AI in healthcare? Oh, well, I reckon, I mean, it would be quite different in every field. Healthcare is quite a broad spectrum. Yeah, it's something that terrifies me, the thought of AI. I mean, it's scary for a lot of people at the moment, I think, AI taking over, um, and in healthcare in particular. But in terms of in different fields... Um, Why does it terrify you? Well, I watched Humans on <laughs> on Channel 4. Wait, what's Humans? Um, so in Humans, the, the robots, the, the AI yeah. look like humans and they 
are supposed to be acting like humans um, and they are looking after children and um, the the show is kind of depicting how you can't quite you can't quite get the same relationships yeah, um, yeah, yeah. but but people are trying and that scares me that we're trying to imitate human life um, maybe we're trying to replace doctors and yeah, yeah. you a machine can be fantastic but it can't it i think it won't ever have the same um i don't know what it is that the, the, the level of empathy and just the, yeah and the the, the personalizing it and there is that whole issue of you know bedside manner and having forming that relationship but at the same time i think um does it give a level of objectivity in areas that could be somewhat subjective so in the area of you know um, a rating of a pain level can be yeah. somewhat subjective and us asking someone what level of pain they're in a six can be different from one person to the other but, but doesn't that need to be subjective sorry i think i think sorry to cut you off what i think is perhaps what makes it scary in what computers have been becoming increasingly powerful ever since they were invented but what they used to do before was essentially accounting, right? They were really powerful calculators. And so what a lot of this AI is doing now is fundamentally the same thing. All they're doing is automated statistics, fundamentally. We're giving them data and they're providing general rules, which is what statistics does. It describes a population. What makes this sort of incarnation of computational power slightly unnerving is that it's beginning to mimic things that we associate with human beings right like understanding and judgment because on the face of it um and especially the humanoid aspect of it when these things start to look like a human because what is it to say that laura sitting next to me isn't an ai right um because i do look perfect yeah. like a robot. <laughs> you look perfect <laughs> made in a in a factory but and it's it's the things behind Laura. So it's the empathy, it's the judgment, it's that nuance, the subjectivity. So if we start, or if computers are now beginning to sort of delve into that domain, I think one of the things that makes us fundamentally nervous about it is that it begins makes us question what we are, what our role is, what the doctor's role is. It makes me wonder if would I trust a robot over a real person? Especially for judging something like pain, because what if physically your your pain receptors are firing at one level? Doesn't matter what that level is, if to you it feels awful. And if I can see that you're in agony, even if your pain receptors are only firing a little bit, you're in agony. I'm a doctor and I want to treat you for that. But but you can't get that if yeah. what you're doing with AI is statistics and they look at the statistics and know you shouldn't be in pain. But I can see that you are. And can you can you compute that into technology? Or can technology? you vocalize it? So for issues of someone who can't vocalize their what they're feeling or what they're experiencing. Um, but then could AI help in diagnosing that? So someone's not able to articulate what they're experiencing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So my field of research is motor neuron disease and I'm very kind of molecularly based. But... Um, technology uh, has kind of got those patients to the stage where it's quite advanced. I'm not sure how um, how well rolled out it is, but there are technologies that um, allow eye tracking and you can track eye movements in somebody who is otherwise paralyzed and they can therefore get across maybe only a basic message, maybe just spelling out words. Um, but that is invaluable to to those patients yeah. And, so. and yeah that's a great example of how these 
these systems are in fact creating worlds rather than shutting us out from domains. So that person who would have very little human experience as we ordinary people would experience it, they, they're able to have a different experience because of machines, right? So in, instead of like a, a depressing factor or, uh, or depressing pressure on the economy or on jobs or anything like that, I think it would have the opposite effect. It would liberate so many of us and not just the people who are incapacitated medically or otherwise, but us ordinary people who couldn't be able to do certain things would then be almost superhuman. Yeah. But it's also the issue of, I mean, we always account for, not always, but we should always consider human error. And there is always the the, the risk of human error. But, and it kind of goes back to what you're saying, Harris, about what makes a human a human. So ethically, how do we draw that? Um, and so... The world's recognized this as an issue. And I think this is perhaps a departure from history, right? Because if we look back 60 years ago, science accelerated far too quickly and mm. ethics was too slow and mm. we had two bombs dropped on Hiroshima, right? Mm. And what's always happened is that the scientists and the engineers have ran past everyone else. And then afterwards, the ethicists, the politicians, whoever, the public have all to sort of clean Same. up the mess and deal with Wait these up, problems. Yeah. Like, what have we done? Um, but with this sort of, I, I hesitate to call it a revolution, but with this sort of, the advent of this technology, people like Google and Facebook have employed on their staff philosophers and ethicists to deal with these issues, right? And so like Tesla is a, a really important case, right? So Tesla are trying to automate driving end-to-end. -end. So you press go and Google tells you what the route is and the Tesla will drive you there. Well, what if there's some sort of unavoidable obstacle in the, in the road, mm -hmm. right? And the car has to make a diversion, a sudden diversion. And on one side, there's a child playing. And on the other side, there's a granny. And it has to hit one of them. Who makes that decision? And who is responsible? Um, well, that's going to be the issue with yeah. healthcare, though, is that of course, human, yeah. you know, just because human behaviors are not linear. They're yeah, not just, exactly. it's not, someone doesn't manifest the same reaction to behavior, the yes. same emotional output to a diagnosis or an experience of a diagnosis or how they're experiencing pain or their symptoms. It's different in yeah. literally everybody. So how can that be factored in? Well, I think that, that weakness, the, the weakness in sort of human computation, to put it sort of in cold terms, is also a blessing in that the, if, if it was a driver having to make that split second decision, it would be very unfair to hold them to account mm. in the terms of which direction they diverted uh, their direction of travel. But a computer can make that calculation. It's fast enough. And so with the idea that it can make a measured judgment brings with it sort of ethical responsibility. And so it's same in the medical sense, right? In healthcare sciences, if a doctor in his, following best practice or in his best judgment or what would be acceptable by his peers still makes a mistake, we allow him as human beings that fallibility. But if it's a rigorously trained computer statistical model that's running on God knows how many hertz of processing power with how many terabytes of memory, do we give it the same leeway? And I don't think you can. But then, And then that brings up the question that we're trying to tackle is then who is to blame when that computer messes up? Yeah, I'm not sure that we do give doctors that that kind of leeway to make mistakes, okay. not only in terms of getting medication right and surgical procedures correct, but also in terms of dealing with patients in a, in a holistic and in a emotionally tactful manner. Yes. Um, yeah. And that is something that 
I just don't think can ever be replaced with artificial intelligence. Um, how would you deliver a diagnosis via via a computer? I don't think there's a right well, way to do that. And particularly in those sensitive times when you are delivering that diagnosis. And I mean, if I'm personally with a patient or as a family member, I want a human there to, to talk to me, not a robot. Thanks, Harris. Thanks, panel. Um, so if you have any thoughts about what we've just talked about, you can tweet us at at postocalypse18. Next up, we'll be talking about PhD journeys and how we all got started. But first... Hi, I'm Michael and I'm a PhD student and today we're going to embrace the inner nerd and the nerdy things we do during our PhD. I get great satisfaction from colour labelling my tubes. Katie, what do you do? My favourite nerdy thing is making pretty patterns out of the tips in my pipette box. Hi, I'm Madeleine, and my nerdy thing of the week is that I was introduced to a website where you can look at funny abstracts and tables of contents on, that people put on papers, and it's called Tokruffle, T-O-C, Ruffle. It's a Tumblr, so go check it out. Nice. Nerd out. So, Harris, how did you get into your PhD? I know it wasn't actually the easiest route um, or the most traditional route, as some of us have. Yeah, no, it's it was a bit different. So uh, after I graduated from my undergrad, I joined the scientist training program. This is an NHS scheme to get scientists into hospitals, basically. Yeah. So is that is that normal for um, you to get a PhD off the back of this scheme? Some people do do that, um, but not in the way I've done it. Often people sort of leave a clinical job, and they so there was a a radiotherapy physicist a couple of years above me. So he completed the program and then left the NHS to go to Oxford and do a full-time PhD and then come back. That's usually what happens if people were to go to PhD. But I've been slightly even more weirder and uh, done it part-time. When you talk about you you realised during the job, you know, when you then got kind of the opportunity to do the PhD, what was important for you and what was in what kind of yeah so it was a number of issues about why this phd worked for me and why i took it up Um, my interest in brain tumors goes all the way back to second year undergraduate physics i was 19 years old and my physics professor was working on these like nanoparticles in the brain tumor to help cure brain cancer these very brain cancers using like a new technique using magnetic fields so yeah i was always was always there i was always drawn to really elegant solutions to these problems right um rather than something like radiotherapy where there's a lot of collateral damage and then this sort of opportunity came across where it was in brain tumors and we were trying to come up with what i perceive to be an elegant solution to this diagnosis problem where instead of battery of more tests or more bloods and all of this stuff we're like what can we intelligently derive from what we already have um so being like a physicist by background i prefer solutions you, you that have the passion that uh the phd students obviously go in into well, a phd with yeah it's not i really hope so yeah i think it's one of those big things that when it comes to a phd you really like you talking back about when you're 19 you still remember it i think it is something that is slightly somewhat deep rooted within us to yeah. embark on this and, and i think you you sort journey. of have to be because yeah i completely agree with you even any sort of phd student, whether it's part-time full-time clinical basic research it takes a lot out of you it takes Absolutely. a lot of dedication and it can be quite isolating, right? Because the whole point is that it's novel. 
for sure. Um, and so there's not a lot of people you can talk to who understand even what you're doing. Absolutely. Or have time to give you. So your supervisor obviously knows, but he has a million other things to do, especially when he has a clinical job as well. Um, and how, do you, how do you find balancing? Sorry, just to interject there, but how do you find balancing that? Because I know that I even struggle balancing yeah. family, friends, PhD, let alone job. So I, I'm fortunate in that I didn't like a, I didn't go straight from undergrad, and so I have a lot of the skills and the context as well. So the idea of like spending your sort of first six months or first year doing all this literature review and picking up all these technical skills. You're a dad in the bank. Yeah, yeah, so I know the literature, relatively speaking. Um, and can always keep reading. Hands. Yeah, exactly. It's always, <laughs> the pace of medical research is insane, insanely good. It's a good thing. But um, and then sort of the more sort of like technical stuff, like the software tools and how MRI acquisition works. I do this as part of my normal day job. Mm-hmm. So that's another thing that's made the balance a lot easier. Right, it's not it's not that I'm balancing two complete disparate things, not a PhD in philosophy. They complement each yeah, other. Yeah, they complement each else. other. And so I feel like my clinical work has improved since I've started doing a PhD. Obviously there's time pressures. Yeah. I'm just talking about the fact that I've gained slightly more in-depth technical expertise due to the PhD, which is why I started it in the first place. Well, one of the reasons was that it's an opportunity to get really deep into something Definitely. which as a scientist was really appealing because surface knowledge or surface explanations are really unsatisfactory and so when you have something you're passionate about you really want to get to know it you know what I mean? yeah definitely yeah. okay and to naomi and laura so the whys and hows of your phd yeah. naomi do you want to take this one first yeah sure so the why i'm doing my phd and the how um why I started my undergrad was in biochemistry and I started to pick the neuroscience modules out of sheer interest um, in kind of the mechanisms of the brain and the circuitry of our brains. Um, and then my granddad suffered with dementia and seeing him and kind of the the, the way that he went through that um, made is kind of my driving force now, I guess, um, in knowing that I want to work in in something with a clinical translation um, and trying to find how we can develop disease-modifying drugs for um, for Alzheimer's and all kinds of neurodegenerative diseases. Knowing that my driving force is wanting to work in something with some form of clinical translation, is it is it maybe similar for yourself? Yeah, I mean, I honestly never saw myself in academia. So I was um, I was back in Canada and I was working in industry after I completed my master's degree. Um, and the little nerd in me was kind of screaming that I there was more I wanted to do. Um, <laughs> there's more that I wanted to learn. So I, I looked into a few programs, um, but nothing really seemed to be the fit. So I kept working in industry until um, I may or may not have followed a boy to the UK. Um, so he was coming here and uh, I decided to, much like a PhD, kind of jump in with two feet. And um, fortunately, it all kind of worked out and I ended up at King's after looking at a few different universities. But, you know, I never saw myself as a PhD student. I didn't think that I really had, I didn't think I was cut up for it. Um, I don't think anybody <laughs> thinks they're cut out for a PhD at the beginning. No. And I <laughs> or think even halfway through. It's true. So. Even at the end. It's, and I think <laughs> it's something you do need to consider because it is a lot of, you know, you're really jumping in and there's a lot that you do need to consider and there's a lot you sacrifice. So how did you 
make that decision? Like, what was it that made you think? I wasn't ready for babies. (laughs) 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 They your options. (laughs) Two options in life. Um, (laughs) No, I... um, (laughs) You know, I think it was, it was just this, there was this driving force that there's something else that I, I wanted to keep researching and I honestly couldn't really even articulate what it was. It just seemed like the right choice. And do you think you're going to keep researching post PhD if that's what kind of kept you going Unless babies come first. Um, <laughs> no, I think, I don't know. No, I don't know. I mean, that's a good question. I kind of, I've been trying to take it as what comes is what I'm going to do. I mean, do you know, do you have this idea in your head of what's next? Uh, well, not necessarily what's next and a kind of linear path, but I started the PhD with the idea that I wanted to go into industry. Um, so it, it was never this academic career for me. It was, I'm going to need a PhD to get where I want to be kind of later on. So that's a great perspective. I think a lot of students go into a PhD thinking, well, I want to go, academia is the only choice. And if I don't get that, then it's industry. And I was kind of the same where I, I, I think I, I, I prefer industry, but PhD gives you that extra level of knowledge. Yeah, absolutely. We have so many talks about um, how it's not a failure if you leave academia, <laughs> um, which to me coming into academia with the plan to leave straight away was is like, yeah. really bizarre. Yeah, <laughs> um, But I do think it's really important because it does kind of feel like that. And everybody's applying for postdocs mm-hmm. and fellowships and, you know, your, your kind of upper level is, is, is PI. Um, but, but actually there are so many jobs in industry that um, that need a PhD and that give you more options that aren't just your field of research. So I'm um, researching motor neuron disease primarily at the moment, and I would like to work in a broader spectrum of neurodegenerative disease mm. and, as I say, move even more clinically than, than I currently am. I think that's a really, you know, it's a good point to make, and I honestly wish that I met with some people before I started my PhD to know that to kind of reassure me a little bit because I think you do you hear this often you hear this one story of someone who's you know they've done their undergrad then their master's and their PhD and it kind of just seemed to be this linear path that they took and I felt like I took a lot of side roads (laughs) but I don't regret those side roads like I I learned a lot during that time and I think it led me to a informed choice to get my PhD and that's not what's right for everybody or what it is for everybody but it is nice to hear that there are different ways to come to that decision thank you for joining us today special thanks to harris for talking to us about your research and about your phd journey and thanks to our panel laura and naomi for our upcoming podcasts we're going to talk about all things phd such as time management or choosing a supervisor so if you would like to get in uh, contact with us and for us to talk about a specific topic, just tweet us at at postocalypse18. And finally, a comment that one of our team members overheard in the lab last week. I love the smell of E. coli in the morning. So if you have something you've overheard in the lab, please tweet us. And thanks again for listening to Postocalypse. Until next time.